everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so honored that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am joined by Andre Henry, and I'm going to talk with him uh, a lot about his brand new book called All the White Friends I Can Keep. And if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to let you know about a couple of things that drive pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. The first one is this, is that we want to be a safe place to have difficult conversations. And we're going to dive into uh, what can be a very difficult conversation today as it pertains to, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of in the title right there uh, for Andre and talking about him, uh, you know, uh, losing relationships as he pursues this uh, movement towards uh, racial justice as well and uh, through his nonviolent approach in that. The second thing is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100% or uh, not, and that we don't have to see eye to eye uh, with someone completely in order to learn from their example. And the last one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from everything and from anything, regardless of what that subject is or regardless of what that thing is, because everything has something to teach us. Everything could be something that we learn from. Now, as I mentioned, uh, today I am joined by Andre and I remember, um, you know, I started following Andre probably somewhere around, uh, five years ago. And, you know, he's just been somebody that I've, um, have, you know, followed on Twitter before and, uh, just, just following and just wanting his perspective because I remember the first time that I heard him just thinking, wow, this guy has, uh, has such wisdom and he has such a, um, he, he just has a perspective that I want to hear on a lot of things. And so I remember whenever I first saw this book coming out and, uh, was, you know, just super excited to get the opportunity to talk with him. Now, if this, as I mentioned, if this happens to be your first time or whether or not you've been listening for a long time, if you have someone or something that you would love to cover on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just have something that you're excited uh, that you're learning about, I would love to hear from you as well. Now, before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about Andre. Andre Henry is an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He is a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter, Hope and Hard Pills. He is a student of nonviolent struggle, having organized protests in Los Angeles, where he lives and studied under international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. His work in pursuit of racial justice has been featured in The New Yorker, The Nation, and on the Liturgist podcast as well. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Andre Henry. Andre, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, just as we're getting started, you know, one of the questions that I uh, like to start out with from time to time is I just love asking people, um, what is like capturing your attention right now? Or what is capturing your imagination or the things or the ideas um, that um, Mm -hmm. have been captured you right now that you're interested in learning about? 
Yeah, okay, so there are a lot of things that I'm, you know, just kind of thinking about exploring right now, but recently a friend of mine introduced me to an online tool for power mapping, basically, and I've been really thinking about it a lot because um, it's from the New Tactics in newtacticsandhumanrights.org and they've done a really great job of creating like this online platform where you can put in like what the issue is that you're thinking about and what your vision is for change and uh, really start mapping out from like the granular level of like who are the two representatives that represent this like power this imbalance of power and then start mapping out the relationships that that those two uh, kind of archetypes would be connected to well getting specific like you're putting in like names of people and their age and what, what their role is and what the relationship that they have to this next person is so that you can start mapping out tactics to disrupt those relationships and i've just never seen a program like that and i think it's like really amazing so i was like up till two in the morning last friday just like on this thing just kind of testing it out and seeing like okay like how would this how would this work because this is one of those things that's super hard we're not hard but it's a bit tedious to do and it's challenging to do when you're really thinking about create you know pursuing some kind of change locally is really doing the analysis of the situation to see how power is flowing through that through that locale so i mean that's something you know that i've really been looking at looking into yeah so if i'm hearing you right you can like type in whatever thing that you're you're wanting to see change in and then it will give you like names of like hey this might be like a local representative or is it just the positions that it shows or or what does that look like well you you have to input the local representatives so okay. like let's say let's say that you were like concerned about uh police brutality you know in your city then you know that would go into your problem statement and you would it would ask it would give you prompts like asking you like what what would it look like if this problem were solved and then you know it'll say well who are the two represent who were two uh people or archetypes that represent this problem so you might choose a police officer and unarmed civilian right and then on the diagram it's going to show you police officer un unsolved civilian in the center of this map and then you start mapping out the relationships between those, not just that, that those two archetypes have, and you start inserting specific people mm -hmm. in your city, the mayor, city council, city manager, uh, police chief, you know, all this stuff, and you start entering them by name, age, relationship, uh, positions, what are their connections to other people until you can map out from that granular level of the police officer and the unarmed civilian all the way out to international, internationally. Then when you're looking at the map in that way, you can say, okay, what kinds of actions will actually, you know, disrupt the flow of power and disrupt this abusive relationship in the center? You know, it's really helpful to be able to visualize that kind of stuff. That is very intriguing. Can you say the name of that again? Um, it's a ta it's called tactical mapping. Okay. Yeah, it's the tactical mapping tool. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, anything else capturing your uh? you're learning right now? Um, I mean, right now I'm working on a lot of music and I'm trying to do more for myself. I usually send stuff out to be mixed and mastered by another professional, but because I'm planning on putting out so much music coming up, it's like, 
I, I just can't afford to pay someone <laughs> to do all of this mixing because you know it cost me about mixing and mastering together cost about seven fifty per song, seven hundred fifty dollars per song. So you know, if I if I have twelve songs coming out, that's almost twelve thousand dollars. So um, I'm just working with some more stuff today. You know, I was I spent most of the morning trying to figure out how to create this like dub delay effect on this one piano part in the song that I'm working on from scratch because you know like sometimes you can find a plugin that you just click a button it's like okay boom that's the effect I'm looking for but um you know like my family's Jamaican my father's a reggae musician so like I know that like if I don't get the right effect like my dad is going to be like yeah you need to go to jamaica and get this done and i don't want to go to jamaica to get it done i mean i like jamaica I, like, I like being there but you know it's it's harder to find someone locally you know to get in the studio with you so you know it's really interesting so i'm having to listen to a lot of like classic reggae music and really listen to like the parts and how things are falling in in the track so that i can not completely copy it but understand like it's a tradition mm -hmm. you know and traditions have norms you know so you want to be able to get that record somewhere that it feels like it doesn't feel like you're copying it right you know yeah and uh, i gotta make my parents proud yeah. you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, um i would i'd be curious to hear from you what does music allow you to do creatively that is different than writing um I mean, they're both, I mean, they're different disciplines. And I would say that music is actually not necessarily more liberating. It's actually more challenging to put things into songs because you don't have as much space, you know? Like, you know, you have three minutes and the point of the song really, you know, is that you want people to sing along, you want people to, uh, or be able to absorb it. So, you know, I can I can use thirty five hundred words for a chapter of a book, you know. But you know, ideally, you know, for a song, you want to use about somewhere between sixty to one hundred twenty words, you know. So that's a lot more challenging, and it means that you have to really know like what what is the crux of what you're trying to say, the idea that you're trying to communicate, so that you can do it quickly. It's a lot. It's actually a lot easier, you know, to write. I guess some people like that aren't writers when they hear, oh, 3,500 words, that's a lot of words. I don't know if I have 3,500 words to say about anything, but when you are writing and you have these two disciplines, songwriting versus like writing prose, like it's a lot easier to write 3,500 words than it is to write 120 mm -hmm. and communicate the same yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, um, what helps you choose between like, deciding to to um to have an idea be expressed through music versus something that you want to express through like the written form i mean i mean usually i'm doing both so like as i said that you know the first words in my book are the first couple lines from my song delusional right and then chapter two i think is the whole world of stone mountain those two pieces are the exact same idea you know this is about gaslighting it's about racial gaslighting but you know delusional has far less words right and delusional expresses an emotion right this is 
how I feel. It's conversational. I'm talking to the person who is trying to gaslight me, saying, you know, I will not dry my tears for you just so that you can smile. I'm not delusional. I smell the smoke and you don't, right? Um, whereas the chapter, The Whole World of Stone Mountain, I'm able to spell out for you, you know, that this gaslighting happens on the systemic level, it happens on the personal level. I'm able to tell you where the term comes from. I'm able to, you know, like there's, there's just so much more. So it really just depends on like how much information, how much information I'm trying to communicate and in what way, because, you know, and this, this is, this is even beyond songwriting. Like I think about, I've had to think about this with all kinds of content, like, you know, is, is what I ha does what I have to say, can it fit in 280 characters? You know, is it a sentence, <laughs> you know, because then it's a tweet, you know, if it's several sentences, then maybe it's a thread. If it's, if it's 13 tweets in a thread, maybe this is a blog post. If it's, if it's a 5,000 word blog post, maybe that's actually a book chapter. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> No, it, it even gets me and I and I would love uh, your thoughts if it's different than that. But it just makes me think of um, of like what I'm what I'm hearing you and, and you say is um, that you're so concerned about trying to get the message that you're going across is that you will sometimes adjust what format you're communicated in to make sure that the message is understood. Does that sound oh, right? Oh, for, for yeah. sure. Like, you know, like the message there there is a tweet version of every of everyone right so you know any piece of content that i'm gonna create is gonna be eight pieces of content you know so you know it's like yeah like that that chapter or blog post is gonna there there's there's a quote from there that has to be able to summarize you know the main idea and that might be the only thing that you tweet it might be the only it might become a graphic that, that goes to Instagram. You know, it might be a song, it might be a video, you know, and I have been trying to, you know, come at these, come at this message in many different ways and through many different media because it's that important, you know? So like I even rewrote, like I wrote, it doesn't have to be this way in 2017, the song, you know, and then, you know, we put that lyric on a shirt and that kind of took off and then I rewrote that song in 2020 because I was like, I'm not sure that people heard me. Yeah. You know? So yeah. No, that even it even just makes me think of um, what you were saying of being committed to one message, and like I think of um, that doesn't seem to be the way that it that that sometimes things tend to be. It's like, well, I said this message, or I wrote this book, or I did this podcast, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I love like. It just makes me think of like, I love your commitment to like, yep, I'm sticking on this message and I'm communicating it whatever way that it works. And sometimes I will rewrite a song to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really important, you know, I mean, and I thought about this too, like some people, they write, they write books because that's, that's their passion. They just, they love writing. So, you know, they're going to write a book about one thing and then they're going to write another book about something else maybe, you know, and you know, they might write 10, 20, 30 books in their career, you know, but I've been thinking a lot about like, I, I didn't write this book for, uh, for entertainment purposes. You know, I wrote this book to communicate a message 
And uh, it is the message, it's the drum that I've been beating for several years now, you know? It doesn't have to be this way because we can change things through civil resistance. And um, someone told me a long time ago, before you know any of this, that like it's really important to kind of like uh, stick to your story, like you know, find your story and stick to it. And so I feel like I've been provoked into this work of trying to spread this message far and wide, almost you know, almost like when I was an evangelical Christian in the ways that we talked about going and preaching this book. You know, like, this is my message. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I wake up in the morning uh, ready to do, is to help people to have their imaginations broadened, you know, and to, to feel empowered to know that, like, you know, we can organize collective action to bring about the change that we want. You know, a new world is possible. What, what was the, the thing or the series of things that made you go, yep, it's time for book form? Well, um, honestly, I had felt like I need to write a book for a long time because uh, a book, first off, it, it can put everything in one place, right? So um, I don't know, I, I've written, you know, uh, maybe 150, you know, 150 plus emails about this stuff. And um, I don't know how many blogs and I don't know how many songs, you know, and all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, there's a book centralizes that information. I right? can put it all together and synthesize it. That's one thing. And that, it gives authority too. It lends authority to what you're doing. And I, I felt that for a while, but I didn't, I didn't really make the decision to, to, to write this book, honestly. It was, I wrote an open letter to the white friends that I couldn't keep in 2019 because the folks that I've grown up with, the white folks, many of the white folks I've grown up with had, you know, had started saying things like, I'm a racist, uh, that, you know, Andre's a racist, he hates white people, all that kind of stuff online. And, you know, by then I had already been, you know, speaking up and writing and making songs and all this kind of stuff for years. And um, I just felt like, um, it's first off, you can't say those kinds of things without a receipt. Like, where's the screenshot? Where it show me, show me the text message or the tweet or the, the blog post or whatever, where I ever said that I hated white people. It's not out there. So I decided to write a receipt of my love for these people, and I wrote an open letter called "All the White to All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep." And a literary agent reached out shortly after I published that blog because it went viral. And Steve, uh, Steve Ross, Steve Ross reached out, and Steve. Um, told me that he felt like there was a book that could be written from that from that blog post, and you know, it. I didn't. I didn't see that when I wrote it. I just wanted, you know, I just wrote something from my heart and wanted to make sure that if these people continue to say that I hate white people online, that people could, that you know, people would go and search for search for me, and they would see that no, I actually really do care about those people. Um, but Steve had Steve saw you know what I didn't because he's a professional book yeah. agent that there was a book in there and he helped me to develop a proposal and find a publisher. Yeah, and and one of the things that is just so apparent in in your writing is um, is the relational side of just all of this. Um, mm -hmm. Would you mind talking just just a little bit about that and kind of what the relational side in all of this has been from from your side and from your experience? 
Yeah, and you know, I have a chapter that is entitled The Personal is Political. It's, you know, comes from a slogan from women's, women's liberation movements. And um, the thing is that uh, I think that we don't always naturally see the connection between, you know, our our personal lives, our private lives, and the political structures that frame those private lives and that shape and structure those private lives, right? You know, um, and so that's how, like, in every chapter, you know, I'm unpack, I'm telling you a story from my personal life, and then unpacking these dynamics that seem to me to be connected to historical events, uh, power dynamics that have existed for a long time, cultural um, assumptions that have existed for a long time, structural injustices, all that kind of thing. Um, because when we don't see this connection, it's very easy for people to dismiss the idea that, uh, that politics, that that uh, political structures, that history, all that kind of stuff, that those things in that those things inform the present moment, and that those things are also felt by real individual people in real time, you know, in their bodies. Hmm. Yeah, and and one of the things um, that was very personally challenging to me in it is. Uh, I swear this happens at least half a dozen times in the book. It might happen more. Um, but you, you write about an interaction that somebody has had pushback against, you know, either text you or DM you or email you or something mm -hmm. like that. And the thing that was challenging to me is you go, let me have your number. Let's get on a phone call, <laughs> which is not the normal thing to happen. I, w I would love to hear um, what, what drives you to go, yep, you know what, I'm going to take this, you know, may, and this is, these are my words, maybe yeah. this impersonal interaction, mm -hmm. and I am going to personal, more personalize um, yeah. this. Well, yeah, you know, I, I used to do that more often. I don't do it that often anymore, but I, I did because what the people that I'm writing about, you know, we have relationship, you know, we, we knew each other, we had each other's phone numbers. And so oftentimes these people would show up online in a very different way with a very different attitude. And I think that I think part of that is just the nature of being behind a screen and typing. It is so much easier to be cruel to people when you're not looking them in the face, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or you're not talking in real time, you're not hearing their voice. And so, you know, and then also there during that time that I'm writing about, I started just getting tired of writing, you know, and constructing these cogent arguments for what I was saying, just for them to be dismissed in a second. It's like, you know, I, I have two degrees in theology, so I've written a lot of papers, you know, I've, I've done a lot of needing, you know, to hammer out my thoughts in writing. And it just got to the point where I was like, I'm not doing this work anymore. <laughs> you know so that's a part of it too like say it saves some energy it's like this conversation would first off be much more personal much more humane likely uh, i thought you know uh they would be much more humane and more manageable if we if we talk you know in real time to one another 
So I did, you know, oftentimes I would, I would just say, hey, like, or sometimes I would ask someone, you know, what's your phone number? Do you want to just talk about this? Mm-hmm. You know, and eventually I stopped doing that. And there was one, I think I wrote about it in the book where like I had the guy's number and I just called him and I just unloaded on him. I just, you know, I think all the rage that I had at, in, at that time in life, I just let it out um, in that moment. And, um, but I, I learned to stop doing that as well because my assumption that things would be more humane if we talked in real time was disproven because, you know, I looked, you know, I was on video chat with one of the guys that, you know, um, in the breakup with white Jesus chapter, we're on video chat and he looks me in the face and says, racism is not a priority to God and doesn't think that he has just said something incendiary, incendiary and, you know, frankly racist you know to my face um and so i started realizing that even that um is not always worthwhile to do but as i say that you know i will say you know even if i have a relationship with someone then i still feel like it's better for us to not go back and forth through email text message Facebook Messenger, Twitter DM, Instagram DM, all that kind of stuff. It's just too impersonal and too easy to get into a completely different mode of communication. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts. And you and you talk a little bit about this in the book. Um, but what helps you, or what what are your you know guidelines or filters that make you go, yep, you know what, I am going to engage with this person because I can tell you know, hey, they are um, they are they are in good faith wanting to have a conversation versus. Um, nope, I'm just not engaging and with this person is all because, you know, they're they're engaging the conversation yeah. in bad faith. You know, honestly, for me, like I've moved on from even having these kinds of debates with people, you know, like and that's a huge part of the book. You know, I could summarize the book in four words, you know, less arguing, more organizing, you know, like I'm just. I am busy. Like I told you, I was up till two in the morning looking at this tactical mapping tool, right? Because I'm working with people on the ground that are literally trying to figure out like, how do we stop um, having to march for, you know, unarmed black civilians being shot in the back, being shot uh, when they're calling the police for help during a mental health crisis, you know, all that kind of, or not shot, but brutalized to death and things like that. You know, so for me, it's like, even people who are engaging in good faith, it seems, if they're engaging in good faith, then I'll tell them what to read, you know, or what to Google or where to go look, since it seems like they're actually yeah. interested. If they're not in bed, if they're, if it seems like they're just trolling, which many people are, and I think that I realized um, in my first book event when I was talking about this, I was like, oh yeah, like you could just easily say the white people that I bring up in this book, many of them are just trolling, you know, even though we know each other, we have personal relationships. You know, they're not engaging in good faith. They want to pull the rug out from underneath the conversation. And you can tell when someone is engaging in good faith and is there to learn because when you challenge someone's idea or you challenge what someone says or you give them something, they respond in a certain way. When somebody says, um, oh, I didn't know that or I'll need to look that up or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's kind of a hint. All right, well, this person just kind of, this person seems kind of open. Uh, the people who are engaging in bad faith, they always just pivot to something else and try to find a gotcha moment. They're just looking for that moment where they can shut you down or they can, you know, 
you, you get what I'm saying? They're looking for some kind of zinger, you know, which is like the guy that I mentioned in the breakup of white Jesus chapter when I said, you know, what's so, when I asked him straight up in good faith, why? Because he was like, oh, his issue was that, oh, me talking about racism um, through a theological con- lens was against church teaching. And I said, well, why don't you include Dr. King? Which is a good question, you know, if I do say so myself, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a good question. And if he were engaging in good faith, I think that he would have paused for a moment and considered, well, why don't I include, you know, people like Dr. King and, you know, other Black uh, Christians throughout history who have fought for their liberation with Christian faith being their inspiration. But instead he said, well, you don't sound like Dr. King. You're sounding like Malcolm X. Okay, well, what what's that about? You know, because that wasn't even part of the conversation. I, I never said that I sounded like Dr. King. I asked him, you know, why he didn't include that. Now, maybe what he was saying was, you know, the things that you're saying don't sound like Dr. King to me, right? But even so, um, you can tell that some of these people are not engaging in good faith because they don't respond genuinely to these questions. They're not willing to stop and reflect. They're not willing to really uh, give attention to the thing that you're putting in front of them. They just keep, it's, I mean, it's like they're in a boxing ring and they're trying, you know, they're trying to be like Muhammad Ali over here and dodge everything that you're saying. You know, they're trying to give you the rope-a-dope, you know, and just tire you out, really. Yeah. Um, that that made me think of uh, one one of the chapters that you talk about in the book is you talk about unity as well, and you talk about mm-hmm. um, our that we have a that we can have a misunderstanding about what actual unity looks like. I would love for you mm-hmm. to kind of tease that out. For sure, you know, because when we talk about unity, usually in in America, especially, we're usually just talking about diversity, and diversity is nothing more than just people of different backgrounds and skin colors and stuff like that being in the same space together but just because we're in the same first off even during segregation black and not black and white people white and non-white people still were in spaces together you know like if you're if you're a black maid working in a white person's house you're in that space together just because you're in that space together doesn't mean that you are in um, a healthy relationship with one another, right? Um, and that is often the, the issue with diversity. And that's the kind of, that's we're, we're often conflating diversity of sharing space together with unity. And oftentimes the way that people suggest that we do this, that we share space together is by covering over those power dynamics, those abusive dynamics, those those unaddressed histories in that space and just kind of hold hands and sing kumbaya and say, well, we're all the same, right? Um, and that has not worked. Like if that strategy were viable, it would have worked by now, you know? Or someone would have at least tried it. Like in the civil rights movement, Dr. King and the SCLC and the, they didn't lead thousands of black people into Birmingham and offer free hugs to racists, you know, to 
to solve the problem. They went in, analyzed the situation, analyzed how power was being used in that city, and they shut it down. And so that and that is the type of unity that is needed. They were united in their purpose <laughs> to bring down the Jim Crow system. And that is the kind of unity that is needed. You know, during the Montgomery bus boycott, there was something like 90% of the black community participated in that action. That is the kind of unity that makes nonviolent action effective. And that's the kind of unity that Dr. King was calling for. Remember in the near the end of the I Have a Dream speech, he says, you know, with this faith, we can pray together, we can work together, we can go to jail together, right? And I keep emphasizing the go to jail go to jail together part because in context dr king is not just talking he understands that that dream of little black boys and little black girls down there in alabama you know playing together and all kind of stuff depends first on uh on a on a diverse coalition of people engaging in nonviolent struggle to break down the barriers that keep people from being able to be in true unity in that way. And so the primary unity that we need first is the unity to struggle for that world yeah. together. And you and you mentioned uh the the nonviolent strategy or the nonviolent approach, which is which is the approach that you're taking. Um can you kind of tease out what that looks like? Because I and again, for me before really even um reading the book, it's like okay, I've heard of it, but your book really helped like mm -hmm. flesh out, okay, what does that actually look like? Yeah, because a lot of people think that nonviolent action is just nonviolent sentiment, right? They think, oh, it's about believing that violence isn't the answer, which is not how change was affected in this country to bring down the whites only signs. Nonviolent action, which I also refer to as civil resistance, and I'm moving more toward calling it civil resistance because nonviolence has so much problematic baggage to it is that it's an active method of struggle against systems of oppression that just doesn't use conventional weapons, right? And, and seeks to do no physical uh, or emotional or psychological harm, but seeks to do no harm to the opponent. And so sitting around on Twitter and criticizing Will Smith for slapping Chris Rock in the face is not nonviolent action, you know? Uh, that That is something, but it's not nonviolent action. Um, nonviolent action is organizing a rent strike to pressure a landlord to uh, improve the conditions in, in their building. It's organizing a boycott against um, companies that refuse to uh, share power with black leadership. It is, you know, it is, it is, it is planning a sit-in in a local politician's office who has been trying to cancel city hall meetings so that we can't get in and voice our opinion. Like that is nonviolent struggle, and the whole point is really to leverage the power that people have, that ordinary people have in the society and leverage that power against the system the, that supports the status quo so that it will meet the demands of the people. You know, uh, one, of, one of the things uh, that you write in there is you talk about um, many of the, the revolutionaries that you've learned from uh, 
and you know studying mm-hmm. everything and um one of them that you mentioned is jesus and so i would be curious to hear from you what are some of the the things that you learned through the life of jesus and then i would love to hear um just from another influential uh, revolutionary leader and kind of what you've learned and taken away from them well actually i wouldn't count jesus among nonviolent revolutionaries i i kept running into people who believed in Jesus as I studied nonviolent struggle. Um, because Jesus wasn't really a community organizer in a, in a straightforward way, right? Like in a sense, you could look at Jesus through that lens, yeah. right? Of, and in many ways, Jesus's life, you know, Jesus endures a lot of the things that we see activists go through, you know, like, the activists are often, you know, surveilled by the powers that be. They're often persecuted. They're off. They often um, executed and things like that. You know, but the thing is that I I walked away from Christian faith and I started studying nonviolent struggle because it felt more practical. It felt like this is actually going to help. You know, in the situation that I've been protesting and criticizing, and I ran into Jesus there often actually. And I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, there is one, I think it is, uh, I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to attribute this to the wrong person. So I'm just going to say that there is a, an activist that says that the, the task of the activist, the first task of the activist is to make the invisible visible. Um, and I think it was DeRay McKesson who said that um, the essence of activism is just telling the truth in public, right? And that's what Jesus did. And Jesus stands in a tradition of, a prophetic tradition of people who did that often, right? Speaking truth to power. Nonviolent struggle does more than speaking truth to power, though. It actually builds nonviolent power and leverages that nonviolent power against systemic power, right? And um, there are so many, there are so many people who have influenced my, my thought on this. I mean, Dr. King is obviously one of them. I've, I've read a lot of Dr. King's work. I've listened to so many of Dr. King's sermons online, you know, and Dr. King really believed that the what he called the love ethic of Jesus was expressed through his understanding of civil resistance. And then there are some living revolutionaries that have really inspired me as well. One of them, you know, was Sergei Popovich. He uh, he founded the movement in Serbia that overthrew the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic. And um, Sergei wrote a book called Blueprint for Revolution that I just think everyone should read, especially in times like these when, you know, we're witnessing fascist counter-revolutions on the rise and this kind of uh, grasping for the preservation of white power and this attempt, these ongoing attempts to establish white, white minority rule. We need more and more people who understand how civil resistance works <clears throat> because we're going to need to use it in the coming days. Can you uh, tease out a little bit of the book and what impacted you so much about it? The Blueprint for Revolution? Yeah. 
Well, Blueprint for Revolution is kind of, well, first off, it's it's really easy to read, you know, it's really easy. Serja is, you know, he is a jokester and he writes with a lot of humor and levity and just makes things plain, you know, and has so many inspiring stories in there. But basically, it's also kind of like a primer. So like, I have a whole library of books on civil resistance and non-violent struggle that I've read. But if you read, if you just read Blueprint for Revolution, <laughs> you would get kind of the cliff notes on that entire library because it has, you know, the stats on nonviolent struggle about, you know, how nonviolence has proven statistically to be twice as effective as armed struggle, how it is, how, um, gosh, how it leaves more stable democracies in their wake after nonviolent revolutions, how it only takes three and a half percent of, or it has, or three and a half, sorry, three and a half percent of the pop, of any population has consistently shown to be enough to to revolutionize society, to topple dictators and all this kind of stuff. Like all that stuff is from a completely different study, but it's in Blueprint for Revolution. You know, it's, I, there, it's just so, yeah. it's almost like a gr greatest hits of nonviolent struggle in there, basically. Uh, one thing that I would be uh, so remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about is the way that you, I remember whenever I sat down and I was reading the book and I opened up the first chapter and you hit us with, uh, John the Revelator in the apocalypse, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I you could have asked me to bet like a thousand dollars, and I would not have guessed that you would open uh open with that. <laughs> but it's so it's so um yeah. shocking and attention grabbing because you're not expecting it. And I would be curious to hear your thoughts on uh on starting with that. Um yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean I had been thinking about using the using apocalypse as a frame for the story that I tell in this book because um, I experienced a political awakening that in many ways kind of ended the world that I believed in, which is the post-racial society, and put me in the real world of you know a world structured and founded on anti-blackness, and also you know. Uh, has also given me visions of a world that could be, you know, a world that is not based on uh, the logic of human hierarchy and structural violence justified by that ideology, but a world that is structured by our community, by community care. And we need that, right, more than ever. You know, the fate of our species, the existence, the survival of our species actually de depends on this. And, um... You know, I, like I said, I have two degrees in theology and growing up, I, you know, I read Revelation 13 every day as a kid because, you know, I, as I talk about in the book, you know, I grew up at a time when there was kind of this rapture hysteria and, and, and uh, I was afraid of this beast from the sea that was going to emerge one day. And then as I was studying, you know, in my theological studies, I came to learn that apocalypses are not just about, you know, like, you know, explosions and, you know, extinction level events and all of that kind of stuff. But apocalypses are really, first off, they are political awakenings. It's a literary genre that operates as a kind of political intervention or a symbolic intervention against imperial ideology. And when you think of 
John as a political prisoner living in uh, ancient Rome and sees <clears throat> or knows of his neighbors worshiping Caesar. Um, he sees he sees the empire making patriots of the oppressed and wants to intervene against that, right? And so writes this apocalypse, uh, this apocalypsos in Greek to unveil the true nature of the Roman Empire, to say that, you know, Pax Romana, the so-called piece of Rome, the imperial ideology, is a lie. And Caesar is not this, you know, hero who is, you know, bringing peace to the world. He's a monster. And the empire is demonic, right? And I feel like similar interventions are necessary today because we live under various, you know, modern ideologies of empire that tell us, for instance, that America is the leader of the free world, a paragon of democracy, establishing democracy all over the world. When the truth is, like, when I was studying, you know, all when I was studying this history about racial violence, and I, I mean, I, I wanted to know about apartheid in South Africa. I wanted to know about um, the Holocaust in Germany. I and I was reading about these things. And I was reading about nonviolent struggle all over the world. And what I found was that oftentimes, whenever you found systemic oppression in some other part of the world, America was somehow tied to it. <laughs> you know, the US was often backing, you know, these was often backing these dictatorships and and destabilizing other nations. And, you know, not to mention, you know, the ways that anti-black violence has been essential in the construction of American society. So this in many ways, uh, was an apocalyptic experience for me. And then, you know, I learned, you know, between 2016 and 2020 that uh, per the uh, support for Donald Trump, for instance, went up amongst black and Latino men. And so I, I hoped that writing this book would be an intervention for people like that as well. You know, well, not necessarily black and brown Trump supporters, but, but people who have been taken in by American ideology, as I was, as many black and brown people are, because we receive the same education as white people and are taught the same mythologies, right? Um, and we need those myths to be disrupted in order for us to do the work of civil resistance, because if we don't understand, <laughs> if we don't understand like the systemic problem here, then there's nothing that we can do about it. That's the first thing is diagnosing it correctly. Well, I got two other things that I want to ask you about um, in in the role of hope and joy that play. But I do want to say, um, I always love giving guests the opportunity of: Is there anything just top of mind that we? And I know we could we could talk about a lot of stuff in the book. But is there anything <laughs> top of mind that it's like, yep, I want to make sure that we talk about this? I think that I think that we really did hit on it. You know, the thing that I the thing that I'm concerned about with this book is that it does not appear at face value to be a book about practical insight for civil resistance you know and there's so much that people can take away from it you know but i wrote this book to put that information in front of eyes that usually wouldn't see them mm -hmm. right because we live in a world that is so um driven by the consumer capitalist logic and all that that people think of the work of civil resistance as like oh that's if you have an interest in activism right 
Like if you're an activist type, then you would buy that kind of book because you're going to be organizing protests and stuff like that. Well, I'm a musician. I didn't, I didn't grow, I didn't set out to become a career activist, you know. Um, in fact, I'm trying not to become a career activist. I'm trying to sell my music so that I can, you know, make money doing something that I love and maintain my autonomy so I can continue to tell the truth. Um, and so I just really want people to I, not miss that, like, this information is given to us so that we can do something with it, so that you can take it and run with it. Yeah. And that if you find yourself reading the book and you say, oh, man, I really wanted to know what happened in that story about Andre, but he switched away from it to start talking about this thing, to know that, yeah, that's the point. You know, the point is for the story to be a bridge for you into this practical insight for civil resistance because, you know, like Serge said in his book, and I took seriously, and I'm hoping that people would take it like, it has to be us, you know, the, the, the force that we need to confront these systems of oppression if it's not us, if it's not our, if it's not us living in this time, then who will it be? We can't assume that it would be anybody else. And, and, and again, like I said, the stakes are just getting higher and higher um, as time continues to pass. You know, we, we, we know that we know that Donald Trump is the front runner for the for the Republican Party again. You know, we know that, you know, the. I, I can't even remember right now. I'm so hungry. <laughs> but, the, the, um, uh, but, you know, the, 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 the climate scientists are saying we have three years, you know, left to really do something. You know, like these are these are things that we need stronger, more strategic civil resistance campaigns uh, to be planned and executed in order to confront. Uh, so if you find yourself going like, oh man, like, but I really wanted that detail. Uh, I, I get that, you know, but remember like the point isn't even about me. It's not even, the point is not even my story. The point is getting you <laughs> involved in some more civil, civil resistance campaigns. Yeah. And it even, like you even just saying like what with, uh, and again, this is just what I'm hearing. You can uh, disagree or give give a different take on it, but um, mm-hmm. you're you're even using your music as a form of activism, yes. and I think that yeah. makes it so much. Um, I don't know if simpler is the right word, but it makes it more freeing because it's like we. I don't know. This is this is just a theory that I have. Like if we don't understand something, we paint it in such a big picture that almost makes it undoable, and it's like, mm-hmm. well. Sometimes it's just looking at our talents, looking at what we have and going like, okay, how can I, how can I help? Exactly. 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 And that's, and that's what I've, that's what I've done, you know, and that's why I write about my music in the book. I write about my music in the book so that people can understand that like, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to build a platform as an activist. In fact, I'm really trying to figure out like, how can I, how can I put my name and face on less things? You know, because I feel one thing I'm concerned about is that, you know, that people might just walk away from this with, well, Andre wrote a good book, yeah. <laughs> you know, and 
I had a lot of help writing a good book. You know, like that's that's the advantage of being signed to one of the largest publishers in the world. Um, but um, you know, I I really do want for this to empower people to take action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the last thing that I would love uh, just your your thoughts on is you talk so much about. Uh, not only doing the work, but the importance of having hope and joy involved in doing the work. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. You know what I just saw the other day, and I'm just really, it's really wrecking my brain, is that I saw enlisted among the universal human rights uh, was ease and rest and leisure. Hmm. And I had never thought about those things I mean, as human rights, and maybe I got close to thinking about those things as human rights, but then I felt like, man, like, why does everything have to be related to a revolution? Like, I also don't want to be like in that mode too, where it's like, I feel like I have to justify everything by making it revolutionary. But when I saw that in the list of human rights, it just really spoke to me about things I have been talking about, about saying like, I don't think that it's fair that black people who go through a type of political awakening like I have would spend the rest of their lives, you know, kind of stressed, tired, frustrated, you know, by kind of this obsession to fight white supremacy with every moment, to be organizing with every living and waking breath. And we we do have to fight for our liberation. You know, that is one thing that is, clear and it's consistent throughout history that the oppressed are end up having to be the ones who will organize for our own liberation because no one else feels the need for it as viscerally as we do but i want to uh live in what there's not a better word for it than proleptic you know prolepsis is you know, for those who are listening, like, what is that? And why are you using your seminary words or your academic words? Like, it's because it really is the best word. And uh, basically, it's, it's, it's like experiencing uh, or living a glimpse of the future in the present, right? Um, since, since you asked about Jesus earlier, yeah. I usually use Jesus' first miracle to explain this sometimes when I'm talking with people who can handle it. Cause you know, I know like some people get very freaked out when you talk about Jesus. So, um, but Jesus turning the water into wine invoked the memory of these prophecies from the Hebrew Bible about the age to come when there, and the age to come would be such a time of joy that the wine would never run out. You know, like Amos talks about the mountains dripping with wine. There's tradition that said, you know, one day a man will take one grape and put it in the corner of his house and that one grape will yield no less than 20, 30 kegs of wine. So when Mary comes to Jesus and says, you got to do something, Jesus shifts the conversation away from them running out of, you know, uh, away from supplies to time, saying it's not time for me to do this yet. It's not, it's not time for the age to come. It's not time for that, for that moment when the wine will never run out, but then does it anyway. <laughs> Uh, Jesus is allowing them to have a taste of the age to come, that age when the wine will not run out in the present, you know? And so I think about, you know, justice work in a similar way where, yes, we are fighting for, we are struggling, we are working 
for the world that ought to be, but that but we can also have a taste of that world in the present and we should we should look for those and savor those moments. And so I know I've taken a long time to talk about this, but you know, you know, one thing that I that I try to do is um um, I try to incorporate, well, I, I just try to make time for things that I love and that I enjoy, honestly. You know, I used to think that I had to be this like really serious person all the time, this really serious kind of jaded, woke, revolutionary, everything is problematic, everything has roots in capitalism or colonialism or violence, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you just can't enjoy anything. And quite frankly, I got into a very severe depression and just wanted to die, you know? And that was like a year after getting started. Like it, it, I burned out so quick that way. And I had to learn from revolutionaries throughout history and living revolutionaries that first off, humor uh, is like a secret sauce in fighting the power. Joy sustains activism, as Rebecca Solnit says. It doesn't betray it. I, I call it joy the secret weapon of movements in the, in the book. Um, it makes all of that work sustainable, but also... I'm coming back to where I started. It's our birthright. It's a human right, <laughs> you know? So even yesterday, thinking about the fact that rest, ease, leisure is a human right, which, you know, we don't have time to talk about how living under capitalism is an assault on that human right all the time and our obsession with productivity and giving somebody else 40 hours a week for little for pay that can't pay you know, for housing, all that kind of stuff is a problem. But yesterday I went like, oh man, I think so much about the systemic and the structural and how can we find that, that Achilles heel of the system so that we can, you know, not have to wear ourselves out in these individual battles. But sometimes, sometimes we gotta find ways to grab hold of our liberation in the most immediate way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the way that I'm gonna grab hold, and the way that I'm gonna grab hold of my liberation in an immediate way, this piece of it is by taking a nap. Well, and that's what I did yesterday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Andre, I know that people are gonna to want to get the book. All the white friends I couldn't keep and keep up with you and your music. Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? Yeah, you know, my website is a great place because it's kind of a hub for all that stuff. It's andrehenry.co. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for doing the work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think there's a couple of things that, um, that it really made me think about it. I think one is um just what we were talking about towards the end there of how how can we use our our gifts our talents some of the things that we already love to do as a form of activism how can we use that to um to talk about maybe the change that needs to happen in different areas or how can we use that to get people to thinking about um different different areas or different um different challenges that are happening in in society and i mean into a, a much uh 
I don't know, maybe maybe to a much lesser form, maybe not. Um, that's one of the things uh, of what we're trying to do here in the podcast is, you know, I'm trying to use my uh, my gifts, my talents, my strengths to call um, to highlight and to platform uh, different people and such as uh, such as Andre. And he has a much bigger um, platform than than I do. But just using my own um my own sphere of influence, if you want to call it, um, to highlight some of the conversations that we need to have or to highlight some of the people that, um, that are worth listening to. And I think the, the other thing that it made me think of, and not, not just only in this conversation, but all throughout reading his book is just this idea of, can we love people who we disagree with? Because so many times throughout, um, throughout the book and throughout even, uh, throughout this interview, you know, just hearing stories of people who, um, who Andre was just trying to talk with and just trying to have a conversation with and just trying to dialogue with, and they wanted nothing to do with it or, um, (laughs) or, I mean, called him out or tried to cancel him or were very harsh and very mean to him. And also just seeing of how many people of those were Christians and just thinking of, man, can we love people who are different than us? And that's one of the things that we're trying to do here on the Learner's Corner. You know, we we talk about it. Um, You know, I mentioned it every single episode. You know, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And that means listening to them, even if we don't agree, even if we are um, so far apart from each other. Can we have a conversation? Can we listen respectfully? Can we dialogue respectfully? And to me... That's just an example that I see um, from Jesus. And that's the way that I want to be treated. That's the way that I want to be cared for. That's the way that I want to be loved for people who who might not see the world the way that I do. I hope that they're respectful to me, that they're willing to listen, that they're willing to um, have dialogue with me. And I think it's just a good reminder for for me and for all of us as well. And so if there's something that you would love us to cover here on the Learner's Corner, I would love to hear from you as well, whether that be a subject or uh, or someone that you would love us uh, to talk with on the podcast. And the best way to reach out to me is Learner's Corner Podcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you on that. Or if there's just something that you're really excited about uh, learning about and you want to share it with somebody, the best way to reach out to me is Learner's Corner Podcast at gmail.com. And leave a rating and write a review of the podcast. It's one of the best ways to help spread the word on this. And I think that's all that I have for today. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Andre for being on the podcast today. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.